Hello and welcome back to another episode of Talking Crones with Jake and Andy. This week we're going to be talking all about fitness, uh, looking back on sport again. We love our sport, don't we Andy? Man loves sport. But we've got a special guest. We've got Ali Jawad on with us today, a Paralympic paralifter and a pretty good CV, <laughs> slightly better than ours when it comes to sport. <laughs> but we are both excited to get him on and uh, have a good chat about all things fitness and how he's, uh, how he's dealt with being at the top of his game alongside managing his IBD for a number of years. Before that, have you been up to much, Andy? Yeah, I've done some bits, mate, um, this last week. Last week or so, um, not on not on out the ordinary. Just uh, just getting by. Looking forward to yeah lockdown being lifted, um, and and yeah, pal. What about yourself? Again, not much working. Probably my the most exciting part about my life at the minute is probably nine o'clock watching I'm a celeb. <laughs> Me. But um, over the last couple of weeks, we have had a message, haven't we? Um, a direct message of somebody which, um, yeah, kind of knocked us for six a little bit. I think you're going to elaborate a little bit more, aren't you, on it? Yeah, it certainly did, mate. Um, out the blue, this uh, lady called Hannah messaged us um, privately on Insta um, and just shared, shared a story of her brother. Brother Zach, um, who she kind of labels as top top guy, normal lad, very brave, very strong. Um, he was diagnosed at sixteen with fairly severe Crohn's. Um, lived a you know a, a, a fairly troubled life with Crohn's up to a, up to a certain point. You know when it's everyone with IBD has their own kind of struggles and the roller coaster ride that they go on. Um, unfortunately, in 2017, he was, was diagnosed with bowel cancer. He was only 31. Um, sadly, she mentioned after a long battle, he, he, he passed away this year in August. Um, some of the stuff Hannah was saying and how the stories we put across and how we are with each other, plus also geographically where we're based, uh, really resonated from her because they're also from, from Manchester. Um, she basically just wants to write into us and, and, and was really pleased to kind of come across us in a, in a way that she, she, she really enjoyed how we speak about our conditions and she knows that's how her brother dealt with her, his condition, um, which is more uh, research and more awareness was done um, and, more, and wishes that there was more recognition of people out there who are actually trying to fight to to, to get um, to get a cure or a potential cure in the future for Crohn's because it's it's a shit one really. Um, yeah, yeah. So when she messaged him, mate, I, I texted you, didn't I? And I was just like, you need to come and see this. Like, what, what do you think? Um, and yet, pair of us were just a bit like, geez. Yeah, I think in shock, weren't we, a little bit? Um, yeah. In a good way. Totally. Um, but I think we did kind of both sit there 
uh, or would text and say, how do, how do we actually reply to this? I think we replied by kind of do, saying, you know, don't really know what to say. And it is um, stories like that that uh, I think we've, we've both said on a number of occasions, kind of, it does make you realise, yeah, you're fighting something that's, yeah, it's not the nicest disease in the world, but um, it's times like that where you do wake up and think, yeah, I've got Crohn's, but I'm one of the lucky ones. Um, but it was also really pleasing to have a short conversation with her and for her to find some comfort in a way um, of listening to our stories and possibly bringing back memories. I know she mentioned how her brother kind of used to make similar jokes uh, around the condition and he used to talk about his uh, troubles of using a toilet on, on a night out and things like that. So... That it kind of did touch us a little bit, didn't it? And um, yeah, kind of knock us to six in a way that it, you know, does this podcast isn't out there just to help people that are dealing with IBD. It can also help uh, other people that have a family member uh, that's close to them dealing with it, maybe make them or allow them to understand that little bit better. So we were just grateful that, that she's wrote in. Um, we also asked her if, if she didn't mind if we shared the story and she was mm-hmm. more than happy with that. So um, thanks, Anna, for letting us know your story um, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. Yeah, definitely. I think after that kind of little message from Hannah and what we've we've just said, uh, I think we're going on to probably the perfect part of the episode. <laughs> That'll hopefully give a few people some laughs now. <laughs> our uh, our weekly poo news. Um, so this is news from anyway. We need like a. Go on. Same. We need like a poo news. A poo news jingle. Like poo news. Poo news. Poo news. Poo news. We do. Yeah. If there's anyone out there listening that's good at jingles, I made a cracking one for a podcast once. Um, if anyone listens, anyone <laughs> listens, it's got a good poo news jingle, please. Right into us, like a, yeah. a Granada tonight. Like dun dun dun. Who knows? <laughs> this week, yeah. hosted by Andy. <laughs> Go on, take it away. Okay, uh, I've got a question for you, Jake. Go on. Would you buy a house made of poop? No. <laughs> well, Definitely not. Simple, but don't make that telepunies. Um, no. Um, is the one on right move? Is this the news? <laughs> um, Semi-detached. <laughs> Thames water down south. Yeah. Uh, deal with about four million people's worth of poo on a daily basis, okay? What okay. they're doing with the sewage works is they're treating the poo um, and basically turning it into blocks of weight that go into building houses. <laughs> they're turning poo into bricks. Sure, yeah, but surely these these bricks aren't a hundred percent poo. <laughs> Mate, I've not I've not smelt them like, but I reckon that they're gonna be the solid material. Basically, 
he said a standard brick weighs about four kilograms. What they're, they're making these bricks into is each block weighs 17 kilograms. What? So the process is, yeah, the process is they burn the sludge um, and then by sending the ash from the lawn, um, mix it with sand, so it's mixed with sand slightly, uh, with a bit of water and cement, um, and then the aggregate particles make the blocks and fuse it together. I'm assuming there must be some sort of like um, fairness involved as well. But yeah, mix a little bit of sand, a little bit of water, a little bit of cement, blocks of poopily. You get me? And Rav, is there any evidence of a house that's been built yet? Didn't see a house. Uh, I just saw this lady at this treatment works. Um, what do you mean you I saw her? Like, you went to meet her? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I went to go meet Geraldine, yeah. Um, <clears throat> basically, and also, it's not, it's not everything. Get on this, right? The other bits that don't get made into bricks yeah. uh, are treated, yeah? Yeah. And uh, put back into the river because they're biodegradable. And it and it and it's okay. It's cool. Additionally, wow, the actual site uh, is powered by electricity, which is generated from the waste. This is like a utopia, <laughs> mate. This is a whole new, brand new world we're living in. Like, you know, down south, basically, they are geniuses. Who are working with shit to make miracles? <laughs> I've got honestly, gotta see this to believe it, haven't you? Are we doing? Are we having, are we having a trip? A talking crones trip? <laughs> You're like, are, are they out? Where are is they, it, they by out? the way? Where is it down south? Uh, it's called a treatment works in Beckton. Beckton, Thames Water, Beckton. Uh, Four million people's dumps, um, 18 tonnes a year, they're producing of bricks. Uh, and yet they're making, making houses for people and that. I, I, yeah. Right, well, we're going to do a check. What we've got to do here, we need to find this out. So there's four million people in this area. Is that what they're saying? Or yeah. four mil- right, what so saying, yeah. there's got to be some... Uh, majority of our listeners are in the UK, Okay. We'd hope that one of them's from there. If not, if you know someone from Beckton, did you say? Pass this podcast on yes, to Beckton, yeah. We want them to write in. You must, you, you've got to know, haven't you? You've got to be made aware. I mean, if, if someone was making houses out of mine and Big Cole's poo, we'd both want to know. Um, you'd know how it goes with me. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, what they're doing, they're protecting the environment and they're reducing the amount of waste that's kind of not being dealt with. It's a fantastic cause um, and they're also helping, you know, people get, get homes, mate. You know, I think it's class. I, I was made up by it when I, when I found it. So, yeah, it's nice. Nice stories. It's, it's revolutionary, but let's be honest, would you want to live in a house that... Like, we need to find out, does it smell? Do the brick smell of shit? 
Put it this way, no one's coming around for Christmas Day at your house if they do, are they? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Everyone mounts round to mine for a Rolfs this year. We'll give that a miss. Yeah, bye, Pasta. Um, yeah. No, like I mean, realistically, it ain't it ain't gonna it ain't gonna stink, is it? I mean, because this would be it's the not. worst business model ever. If it's gonna, <laughs> I mean, it's gonna you're not selling the business model to me anyway. <laughs> <laughs> like, imagine, imagine this bright spark in Thames Water, and they're like, "Oh yeah, we've got this great idea. We're gonna make we're gonna make poo into bricks and build houses." And then this like red row turns up and wimpy turn up and all, all the, the house people and they go. Okay, show us the bricks, and they're like, "Here you go, here's a brick." And they can't pick it up, and it stinks. Oh no, it's and seventeen like, kilograms. <laughs> and they're like, y- "And you want us to make houses out of these <laughs> things, these monstrosities? Do you want it again?" Uh, <laughs> brilliant. I did this on Dragon's Den. <laughs> Deborah Maiden, can you just sit on that toilet for us, please? <laughs> Watch what I'm going to do with your shit. Anyway, um, that's, poo, that's poo news, Andy. Oh, I did a, a, did a related instance as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm, 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 I'm job hunting. I did see a, a job at a, a sewage company the other week. Right. But uh, I decided not to, not, not to go for it. Why? Because I thought I'd just be going to the motions every day. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the end of two news. <laughs> right, well, we'd like to welcome our second guest for the podcast this season, episode two. Um, talking all about fitness, um, we'd like to welcome Ali Jawad. Have I pronounced that right? You can come whatever you want, but yeah, hold on. <laughs> How are we doing? Yeah, good. I'm doing very good. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no problem. A few things um, I've wrote down about you. I'm quite overwhelmed while I was writing these notes down, actually. Pretty impressive. Um, so I'm going to read them out, but I want you to stop me if any of them are wrong, because our research okay. could have been totally off. So I've got here, Ali, born in Lebanon, yep. um, emigrated with family to the UK, an early yeah. age, lived in London ever since. Um, you took up powerlifting at the age of 16. You are a para powerlifter. You were diagnosed with Crohn's in 2018, and I believe it was before uh, 2008. Sorry, blimey, I was like, wow, yeah. <laughs> again, <Yeah. laughs> 2008. Yeah, so, so 2008 was when I got symptoms, 2009 was when I got diagnosed, but I had, right. had symptoms. Yeah, yeah. Was the symptoms, I believe, beca- become just before Beijing, the Olympics? The night before I competed, yeah. The wow, night there we go. Um, wow. The next stage about which I'm sure we'll, we'll touch on, uh, I read that complications with Crohn's in 2010 almost le- led to kind of dying because yeah. of it. Um, some huge positives, this is amazing. Uh, you've been world number one. Luckily, yeah. You've, uh, you've held world records, competed at Paralympic Games, including London 2012, which me and Andy are big fans of, uh, a bronze at Glasgow and the Gold Coast Commonwealth Games, a yep. silver at Rio 2016, yep. and 
gold at the 2014 World Champs and the 2015 European Champs. And 2018 European Champs too. Oh, I've missed one out. Ah, uh, you're sacked, like you're sacked. <laughs> not a bad CV, though. <laughs> not bad, not bad. Um, so, yeah. yeah. Wow. It's amazing, welcome. No, thank uh, you. We'll start then, as it's, obviously we'll, we'll get into a lot of fitness things, but talk us through, um, because it's probably tough for myself being diagnosed or kind of the early stages of IBD, how young I was. I do remember little things. Andy was slightly older, so I'm sure it's more in his memory. But the night before you competed at the Paralympic Games in Beijing, like what, what was going through your head with these symptoms? Yeah, so I had a dream about competing at the Paralympic Games since I was six. Right, wow. Um, it took me a very long time to find the sport I was good at to get there. Now, when I finally made my first Paralympic Games in Beijing, I was only about um, 19, so I was quite young. So I felt like I was living the dream. Uh, I was overwhelmed with like the, the village and like the food hall and like the superstars in the village. Like it was absolutely insane. Like I've never experienced anything like it. Now I only went to Beijing as somebody to just to get experience. I was never going to really medal. I was too young. Um, but for some weird reason, um, three days before I competed, I'd lifted a weight in my last ever session before competing that would have won me bronze that day. So I knew I was in the best shape I could possibly be in. Yeah, my wow. progress was rapid. So I was actually quite wow. excited. I was quite excited about what I was going to bring. Yeah. Uh, even though nobody expected it. Um, and the night before, I went to dinner, came back. And I was like, I feel, I feel quite bad. I don't know what's going on. Um, I feel quite ill. Um, my right side of my stomach was hurting. Uh, I started like sweating a lot. Really hot. Um, yeah. And then I started going to the toilet a lot more. Now I realized actually this is, this is serious. So went to the doctor. Um, they, they thought it was a head cold. I just caught something in the village because obviously, you know, you're, you are part of a, uh, a village with like different people that you've not met before, different habits. It, it does happen. Uh, yeah, yeah. It does happen. But I thought that I was actually quite careful and I thought, well, you know, that I've done everything that I possibly can. Maybe just I'm unlucky. And if it is a flu, it's the weirdest flu I've ever had because I've trained through flus and colds before as an elite athlete, you do that. Yeah, yeah. And nothing like I've ever done before. Uh, and I spent all night on the toilet, um, flu-like symptoms as well, had flu-like symptoms, dehydrated, on the toilet. Within Overnight, I'd lost three kilo. Woke up next morning, I was three wow. kilo lighter uh, and they're going to pull me out. Uh, I said, no, I've worked too hard to get here. I was never going to medal. This is my first one. Just let me compete. Yeah. Um, and the, I think in my mind, I set myself a target of don't come last. And luckily I didn't. Um, and I was the youngest in the funnel by about seven years. So for, for me, like even though I was sick and I was the youngest by a long way, I didn't come last. And I felt that I thought it was a little win, but it wasn't the shape that I had three days before. Um, yeah, I was about yeah. 10 kilo down on what I lifted th three days beforehand. I kind of felt it was a learning experience and I thought I was unlucky and I kind of wanted to come back and kind of get better and then push on to 2012 because I felt like I was so young, I was going to hopefully medal in 2012. So yeah, it was, um, I thought I was just unlucky. I didn't know what was going to happen. Yeah, it's funny to hear, obviously, with, with you being 
an elite athlete and being in that kind of mindset it's funny to hear that you to anybody that's got IVE I'm sure they'll understand the the symptoms you spoke about that up all night and things like that but the fact that you compete in the Olympics the following day you set yourself not to finish last but then you talking here and looking at you it's still like a, to any other person that's a huge achievement but to you it's like I, I should have done better I should have done so it's just like that mindset set of your kind of being an athlete at the top level is still overpowering that being ill isn't it well, yeah, well, I think you don't know what it was. Uh, and obviously, you listen to the doctor and they felt it was a, just a head cold or, or, or flu or a bug you've caught in the village. You don't really think it's that serious. You think you've been unlucky. It's happened now. This is a circumstance I've been given. We'll get through it. Yeah. As elite athletes, we get through anything. We adapt. Um, but I didn't know what was coming. That, that was the issue. Uh, when I, and, and, just... that, and that it was nine months of hell after that. So, so back then, when I came back... Um, when I went to the GP with my symptoms, I was still struggling when I came back. I got actually worse. Um, when I went, they said, oh, well, you've been through a very stressful time and it's just stress. Uh, you're, obviously can't, you're obviously coming down from a massive high and that's going to have a lot of, you know, it's going to release a lot of stress that you just, you just need to chill out. Just have a, have a month off and just chill. I was like, no, my, like, my stomach is killing me. I'm not eating. I've lost like, seven kilo from somewhere yeah. like i love food like we could lose seven kilo in like two weeks there's something very wrong with me yeah um, i'm pain and like yeah. you know like i'm not sleeping i'm in agony i literally like sometimes i literally like um one time i'm fine and then the next minute i'm on the floor like my hand on my stomach and i can't speak because of the yeah, pain yeah. that doesn't happen to me so i said to them like there's something wrong it's like no nah, no nah, go away it's just stress come back to me in two weeks if it keeps going happening and then within two weeks having lost another like seven kilo um and not sleeping or eating he knew there was something wrong <laughs> yeah it's it's amazing when you hear stories about people being diagnosed and you know to to us now what is so obvious you think how how could they get it so wrong or just kind of say you know go away and see if things develop further um the awareness well, i think the awareness what 11 years ago was not as it is now. Um, no, I no, think of course. If it happened now, I think it would be easily, like, I think it would be a little bit easier. Yeah, it's yeah. Been, it's been raged, but I think back then, even I didn't know what it was. Like, no, I, I no. Didn't know what it was. Um, I just thought, like, you take a pill and you go home and you're, you're cured. Um, oh, <laughs> we wish. How naive was a 19 year old back then? Blimey. Yeah. It, I mean, talking on fitness then, because obviously we, we know we've got family and friends that competed at London. So we know kind of, it's not, you know, six months before you start preparing. You prepare. They were going through probably six to seven years, Andy, before they got there. So yeah, to yeah. hear you, yeah. Ali, that, yeah. you know, Beijing to London is four years. So symptoms started basically the day before Beijing and you got diagnosed the year after. So now you've got three years. So we kind of can understand the weight you've, you've lost, um, how your body will have changed. So how did your training leading up to your second Olympics like change, I suppose? How did you manage that? So it was non-existent. So um, after Beijing, I didn't compete for two years because of Crohn's. Right. So when wow. I got diagnosed in wow. 2009, so basically when I got diagnosed that day, uh, I was told that because of the unpredictable, like, because it's so unpredictable, they think that will be a massive disadvantage at the top, top level, much of the time. Also, at the time, this was 2009, 
no Crohn's sufferer, this is Crohn's, not colitis, Crohn's, has ever won a medal at any Olympic or Paralympic Games. It's never been done. And they haven't got proof that it can be done. So um, I didn't compete for two years. I tried to make a comeback. So I tried to go against the doctors and say, you know what? I think I can do it. I've got the resources to, I might as well attempt it. Just because nobody else has ever done it, it doesn't mean I can't. But not knowing the gravity of what's coming. That's the thing. When you don't know what's coming, you think, you know, you're 19, you've got an ego, like, you know, you've got all the resources that money can buy. You're lucky you're in that privileged position. You think you can do it? But actually, the suffering that I went through that didn't get anywhere, I just kept getting worse. The Crohn's just could not hack me training because I was putting myself under extreme levels of fatigue. Yeah. We're talking about extreme levels. We're not talking about like, let's go to the gym and like get fit, get to the limits, um, and then hoping you're, you don't flare. Going to the gym, I was collapsing in the gym. I was collapsing. Wow. Um, I, w- I wasn't able to eat because of the pain. I was not sleeping, which sleep is really important. Um, I didn't know what to eat because it was trial and error. At the time, nobody really thought that food and Crohn's was a thing. Yeah, yeah. It was all about medication. Yeah. It was all about of, you know, drugs that you don't like. Yeah. Uh, and the side effects that brings as well. So for me, I had to learn quite quick that actually there isn't a rule book here. I've got to trial and error and use myself as a case study and hope I get through it. What I was having was, was that um, Crohn's is not like me training. So I had to pretty, I was pretty much retired for two years. In 2010, I got rushed in for emergency surgery to save my life because it got so bad. And then they were going to give me a bag. Right. Yeah, I remember the doctor the night before, the, the, um, he said to me, uh, you have to prepare your friends and family for the worst. Right, wow. Um, he said, I don't know what I'm going to find in there. And I don't know if I want to give you a bag or not. I just have to see what I find. And if I'll give you a bag, give you a bag sort of thing. I begged him not to cut me open and do it keyhole. And I said, if you do it keyhole, it means I might be able to come back with London two years away. Yeah, yeah. Cut me right open. That's it. I can't go. The, 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 the recovery time is too, is too much. You can't promise me anything. So I woke up um, after the operation. The first thing I did was, was touch my stomach to see if I got a bag. And secondly, I said to the nurse, did he cut me open? He's like, no, you've been very, very lucky. He's well, managed. He's, he said, what he saw in there was disgusting. He said, <laughs> he said but he's managed, he said he was so skilled. He, he managed to do it keyhole. Um, he's, given you a, he's given you a chance. Wow. But you need six months off. Like, I was like, no, I can't do that. Like, <laughs> like, you're not able to do it otherwise. Um, so I said to the doctor when I came out of there, I said, I, um, so I said to him, I'm going to try and make a comeback. He looked at me and was like, like, I need to clear you before you do that. Like, you're not going to be insured in any gym. They're not going to be insured for you. Right, well. Yeah, because yeah, I have to, like, I'm, I'm a massive risk to any gym. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I did something sneaky and I, I was in hospital for a week to be monitored. And then within 14 days, I was in the gym. Another achievement <laughs> boxed up. <laughs> but, 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 just to be clear, do not try that at home. I'm not having Like, that, that's me, and I'm, I'm a bit nuts. So I went to the gym two weeks later, and uh, it killed me. It absolutely mur- Like, oh, I, could, I thought I at least ripped my insides. But wow. um, the doctor said that if I can prove to him that I'm recovering, he might accelerate that. So I had to prove it. I had to hit milestones. And within... 
when he saw me two weeks later, he said that I've recovered as much as somebody that's recovered after three months. He said he couldn't believe it. Then he gave me another chance at going to 2012. But unfortunately for me, that, that comeback was too quick. And right. my, tw- my 2011 season was over because Crohn's came, got me again. And basically between, London, between Beijing and London, I only trained for five months of the whole of that four-year cycle. I think a lot of it then, um, Ali, was with, with the training side of things, was kind of frustration of this new, like, and it is a crazy change to your body. I'm speaking here from, from personal experience. When I got diagnosed, I was six, seven years old in terms of symptoms get diagnosed. And I played football at a good level. Um, and up until kind of I got released, I was, I, I missed seasons. And it wasn't frustration in the sense of, you know, I'm, I'm setting out to be a professional player here because that's a, a big, long goal. Um, but it was just more disappointments. Whereas yourself, you, you've been at Olympic Games, you're now training for another and you're pushing your body to the limit because I need to, I need to get back to the Olympics and I need to show the world what I could have done at Beijing if it wasn't for, you know, yeah. the situation sitting on the toilet sort of thing. Uh, yeah, to be honest, like, um, obviously when I first got diagnosed with frustration, because I was trying everything I could and it was, get, it was getting worse. It was getting so much worse. And obviously I lost 25 kilo of body weight in about a month. Wow. So that, that's how my body went into a huge transformation, the opposite way, and still trying to, well, to train at that sort of level. You, you're not going to be able to do it. I was quite lucky. So after the operation, even though my 2011 season was over, because I came back too quick, I admit that. And um, that's on me. Um, it was my choice. But what happened was, was I moved up to Leeds to be a part of um, a kind of a, a world-class program that provided me with the top coaching, top doctors, top nutrition. Uh, I was living there as well. The discipline was at a much higher, higher level because I could be monitored on a daily basis. And it's, you know, and, and what happened was, it was weird. My symptoms for five months even though I had problems, they could they totally vanished. Now, I think looking back then it was luck because we weren't trying anything different. But I think it was the way I was living my life with like, like nutrition, sleep, training facilities, coaching, sports science, everything like that, that allowed me to give myself a chance in that five months. Um, and I actually went into London as someone with an outside chance of a medal. Because right. five months, I put on um, incredibly. I put on about forty kilo on the bar. So from from qualifying in last place, so barely qualifying for the games, to being in the contention to actually medal, I was yeah. in very. I was actually in a very good place, uh, and I knew that actually, like, I'm not going to tell anybody, because I want to keep it secret. Because nobody's, nobody's going to expect me to be there. But also at the same time, I had, you know, thousands upon thousands of. Crone suffers. I didn't want them to hang it around my neck because you know, you know, when you when you've got that belief that somebody with your condition can pull off something like that, you start believing yeah. it. Yeah. 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 So I thought, go in there, like your outside chance of a medal. If you do it, massive shot, great. If not, nobody expected it anyway. Nobody even thought you were going to be there. So uh, that's what we did, uh, going up to the games, and um, I got very, very close. Yeah, yeah. Was it fourth? I believe. The most controversial fork you'll find, yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, just just competing, 
from my point of view, you know, speaking to you now, competing at Beijing and competing at London are in themselves. Probably me talking about experience of IBD here is like a massive achievement. Um, you know, growing up, again, there was no real awareness of IBD. So once, I think it was my dad that read his autobiography and told me stuff about Steve Redgrave. And that yes. became... Yeah, so we went to his, we went to his consultant. Right, we had, wow. We had access, we had obviously part of the elite system that we get access to a lot of the, the doctors. Yeah, um, yeah. Experts in their field. Then we went to him first um, in terms of like, right, what are we doing wrong? What right. are we doing wrong? Um, and I think, I think for us, it was more like looking at what we were doing and not basing it on Steve because he's got colitis. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and they are different. They are different. Like yeah, they are, yeah. They are different, but it, Crohn's brings a different, um, different challenges that, that, you know, like maybe they didn't think of. But also at the same time, Steve had diabetes as well, I think, as well. Yeah, yeah. What he did was absolutely insane. And, yeah. and I think like the model, like if he can do it with two conditions, why can't I do it in mine? So yeah, for, for me, like Steve was the was the kind of the, the blueprint of uh, what we're trying to achieve in terms of how to implement something that good. That, and that's like it's crazy to say because as, as a kid, I I looked up to him in just the sense of he's at the top of his game, winning golds, and he's dealing with something very similar to me. I ba- I bounced between the two for years with doctors of he's got colitis, he's got Crohn's, he's got colitis, and um, but it's crazy to say that someone like yourself that's also at the top of their game looked up to him as well and I think there's probably young people all over the UK maybe even the world that have got IBD definitely got Crohn's and can now relate to yourself and go well you know this guy's been to Olympic Games he's won gold medals he's won silver medals and he's done it managing a disease um me and Andy one of the questions we wanted to ask us we're both well into our sport um, and we both love to play sport, whether it's really competitive or whether it's just with friends. But then when it comes down to that kind of the, I suppose, the discipline to be going to the gym and that next level, um, I think sometimes it's kind of like, yeah, we can just blame it on our fatigue and we can just sit on the couch and get a bag of Maltesers and watch a film. How, oh, did, <laughs> how did you come to that kind of finding that balance then? Because it sounded like leading up to London, it was frustration. I want to get back to training, try and forget what I've got. Then after London, looking at your credentials, it, it, where you kicked on to start winning and, you know, breaking records. So London, when I got into London, I was quite, um, I think I was naive in terms of, I felt that life owed me some good luck after what's happened to me. Yeah. And that was a naive way of thinking because going into the games, um, I, don't, I don't know if you've read what happened, but, I would have won silver if it wasn't for a refereeing decision. So I actually would have, I, I lifted the weight that would have won silver that day. Right. Uh, and got, wow. got away from me. Um, but that was the light bulb moment. Um, I felt looking back, I thought like, even though I was really like upset and disappointed and I was, I hated the sport. I actually looked at myself and thought in the four years leading up to this, you've only trained for five months. You don't deserve a medal at that sort of level. Yeah. After yeah. Five months of training after four years. It's, after everything that my body's been through, to expect you to, to even get to the games is one thing. Yeah. yeah. Medal winning weight, and you only got denied by an external kind of circumstance. This is actually now time where you need to start. If, if you can get the best support possible in the next four years, 
why in Rio can't you pull this off properly? Um, and actually, you don't deserve luck. That's another way of thinking. Like for me, you just put things in place to give yourself the best chance of pulling it off. Luck doesn't come into it. How I felt after London. So what I did was I stayed in Leeds. Uh, we got a team around me and we got the best doctors, best nutritionists, all the team that I thought could um, pretty much help me to try and get to Rio in a, in a way that, you know, I think I could be at. Um, you know, luckily within a year after 2012, I broke the world record, became what number one. And I was unbeaten for about three years. Uh, got into the, got into Rio has having won every single major middle one offer apart from that one. And that was the one that I wanted the most. So yeah, for me, like the, the motivation for me was to write them wrongs in London, but also I felt like, you know, I was getting very close to do something which nobody's ever done. I was so close, so close. Um, and, and that's what really drove me thinking, how much can I push the disease? And the thing is, for that time, like the fatigue element is, is massive because um, you don't, it's weird, you don't really appreciate your energy levels um, or how they should be. You kind of accept the reality that you're always going to be under fatigue. I'm always yeah. under fatigue. I'm always going to wake up feeling dizzy and you know, not all there. And I had to accept it from the beginning. Get out of my head and go, look, you are fatigued, but actually it's an obstacle. It's not going to move, so you're going to have to go through the obstacle. Like, I know like, not many sufferers think like that, and they're going to go, well, yeah, but I'm so fatigued, I can't train, and I have to look after myself. I'm like, well, yeah, but if you've got an aim that big, then you're going to have to go through the obstacle. You're going to have to yeah. suffer a little. Um, and I think my suffering eventually led to that reward, a reward that, you know, only what? I think, what, two Chrome sufferers have ever done it? Kathleen Becker being one at the Olympics and me being the second literally in a month month apart so two Chrome have done it in the same in the same year so um, it can be done so it can be done it just have yeah, to be it's... able to get through the obstacle but I do understand like in the beginning I was making every excuse arms oh, too fatigued too, I can't do it I'm too fatigued and I felt and somebody said to me look how much do you want this like yeah we understand the fatigue we can't do anything about it but we are talking about a Paralympic Games and a potential medal. We're going to have to put something, you have to find a way. Like you have to pluck up the, the courage and the resilience that you've got in you as an elite athlete and use it to try and go to Crohn's. You know what? I've got Crohn's, but I'm going to try to take you to the limit and you're going to be in a fight and I'm going to win. That's a really, that's a really, I was just going to say, Ali, it's a really good example of you focusing on the things that you can control rather than the things that you can't control in, in certain circumstances. So you can't control that someone may have made that error in that final. But what you can control is is how you want to train and how you want to bring people in to support you. Everyone's path's a little bit different. Um, but there's certain things in life that anyone with IBD can't control. But there's a lot of things that they can control. They can control what they can eat. They can control what time they go to bed. They can control X, Y, and Z. Um, and then that just brings me on to something I was going to say, like the way that what you've done in current period around, say, lockdown, and how you've changed your living room into a gym. Because, yeah, we can't, we all can't go to the gym. We all don't have like facilities that are going to be open and stuff. But then you found the way around still training for, for Tokyo. And like, how's that going for you in terms of like, Tokyo was a bit disappointing it didn't happen this year but 
Well, to, to be honest, I, I beg to tell that one because um, basically uh, after Rio, I had the biggest flare-up of my life. Right? Oh, after Rio. So, the high, so I was three years without any symptoms, absolutely smashing it. Like the best kind of period of my career. And after Rio, my body was like, you know what? We've given you that time. I'm not, I'm not, Cruz is going to try and get me again. But this time, the worst it will ever be. Um, and after Rio, I didn't compete for two years. Right, wow. about, yeah, so every medication on the sun that was available to me. Now, remember, I've got access to the best care. So yeah. I'm lucky. I'm lucky to a lot of sufferers. Uh, and they couldn't find a way. I was getting worse. Um, and in, two, well, I think 2018, I got the diagnosis of nothing's working. You've got two more options. Uh, one is the stomach bag. The other one is a stem cell trial over a year. And it requires chemotherapy. And it's only a trial. They're both very, very dangerous. And whatever option you pick, you've got to retire right now. You're not going to the games, basically. So uh, I was like, oh, okay. So um, I went away. And uh, I, thought, I asked myself whether or not I'd be happy or satisfied to walk away now after everything that I've achieved and take the operation um, or, the, or the stem cell trial. And I thought, you know what? Actually... No, um, I think I can still push the disease to like limits that's not been tested before. And I think I'll, I think I still want another crack at Tokyo to try and better my performance in Rio and try and win it. Um, so I took a different route that nobody wanted and people thought was a bit more dangerous than the other two options, even though the other two options were dangerous. Um, it's never been done this way before. Uh, I got criticised heavily, but... Um, well, I've, I've, had, I've faced a lot of challenges um, since, but my, my plan's been adaptable, it's been flexible. I accepted from the start I may not make it to the games, but at least I'm going to be able to at least be happy in myself that I pushed it to limits that nobody's ever going to push it to. Will I get there? If not, I've done everything that I can, but I'm still hoping to get there. So I was never going to be fit this year. So with lockdown, give me another year, um, is hopefully making me bridge that gap and hopefully I can be as competitive as I can be next year and pull off yeah. something hopefully special. But nobody expects me to medal next year at all. Obviously, after Rio then, talking about um, the flare-up and it, like again, like you say, another challenge. The Gold, Gold Coast was 2018 and you won bronze there. Yeah, so I only trained for six weeks for that. I was going to say, did you even train for that? That's another, you know. Yeah, so leading up to that, there was no training at all. Uh, I was suffering badly. I hardly trained. Then in December, when people thought my career was over, because obviously the Gold Coast was in March, June time. Yeah. I felt I need something to aim for. I need something that's going to motivate me to try and keep pushing. And I've always wanted to go to Australia I've always loved the Commonwealth Games because that's where I broke my world record in 2014. Right. I've got to at least try. I only had like six weeks to try and qualify for it because of the qualification periods. I was nowhere near that shape. Like, if I didn't get selected, I would have understood why. But yeah, that, that, that six to eight weeks was interesting because I got to, I managed to get there. And looking at the people that were there, there was no way I was in the middle. No way. But I knew that, you know, I've been, you know, my career, I've been in the trenches. I know what it feels like to be against the most ridiculous odds. And I felt that if I took the person that could, won, that could win bronze to the limit, he'd probably crack compared to me. 
Yeah. And, and, and so the game plan was to take him to the last lift, keep taking him to the last lift, make him go out and lift again. And luckily for me, uh, he cracked and uh, I won bronze and you saw the images. I couldn't believe it. Ali, just, just to kind of focus on, on, on one thing, and I, I think it's, it's certainly prevalent now in, in the kind of day and age we're in where everyone is a little bit isolated, a little bit more, um, and maybe some people's mental health might be a little bit kind of put under a bit more pressure. Yeah, I know I've read a little bit around saying that you're, you're fairly used to being in isolated situations and, and stuff. Is there any advice you can give to people out there who might be a little bit struggling, who might need that like kind of little bit of extra help? Like how, how have you managed to deal with your isolation and find success? I think um, the number one thing that I can probably kind of suggest, and this is from like my point of view, um, I know everyone's different, but you need to set yourself a target that motivates you that motivates you so much that you're willing to accept the dark times to give yourself a chance to achieve it. Now, I know during lockdown, it's hard to aim for anything, but I think that having an aim to hang on to, is, is, it will definitely make that process a little bit better. Now, obviously, people say, yeah, but you're lucky. You've got a Paralympic Games to aim for. That's the biggest, that's, that's the biggest aim anybody could have. How can we compare to that? But I challenge people to go, actually, yeah, I've got that, but about, no, I kind of ask them about what do they want in their life? What, what is their Paralympic moment? Like, nobody's gonna, not everyone's going to make the games, but a lot of people always have aspirations to be better. So for me, it's like, right, what does optimal, what does, you know, incredible look like for you in your life? And then go, you know what? I wanna, that's what I want. That's going to make me happy. So I'm willing to go through the dark times to get there that there will be unpredictable, uh, un, like, unpredictable moments like now, like we are now, that I need to be able to adapt to anything thrown at me because my aim is still here. And sometimes, also we know that progress isn't linear. You're going to go through loads of patches to get there. People have to accept that and have to be like, they have to probably enjoy it because that reward when you achieve it, there's actually no better feeling. And you look back and go, you know what? I'm so happy that I learned all the skills to adapt and be flexible and I, I learned so much about how much I could take how strong I was when I didn't think I was in the, in the beginning I think a lot of people learn a lot about themselves when they experience hardship when beforehand they never thought they were capable of it so you have to be in that experience and in that moment and be in that situation so for me I always say to people set set targets that that inspire you so much that you wake up every day and go you know what I don't care about the world ending I'm still want to achieve it I was going to say that about what you said there towards the end about adapting and I suppose changing your lifestyle and at times, you know, possibly being on your own for a certain amount of months, especially the situation now. Do you think, Ali, your Crohn's has, has kind of changed you in that sense? You know, trying to think really looking back now to before Beijing and that training, but from basically Beijing to even now, like you've like listened to you, I'm in awe because the, the amount of things you've gone through, and this is where we've talked about on the podcast a lot. I listen to other people's stories about their Crohn's or clients, and I now look back and think, wow, I, I was lucky. I, yeah, I've been ill at times, but I've got away with a lot in terms of. But 
has it made you mentally stronger and been able to understand that actually I can adapt to any situation? I can challenge myself so when I'm, you know, in a, in a bad, bad rut, so to speak. I think for me it was more like um, I knew I wanted to be an athlete when I was a kid. I wanted to compete at the Paralympic Games. That was my dream. And I wanted to medal and you know, potentially win it one day. But I also knew that a disease like this one has got the potential to derail that. In fact, it's got the potential to retire you. Retirement quite a lot of times. <laughs> um, so I knew from the beginning that I needed to think in a way that had to be adaptable. My, my, my plan could not be regimented because if that got changed, then I'd freak out or the potential to freak out would be quite big. So I needed an environment where there is a plan and there are monitoring strategies in place to react to things, but we knew that Crohn's is unpredictable and it likes to throw everything at you to see how much you can take and, and how much do you want it. So, it. so I was living in a reality where I was, through, I was going through adversity on a daily, daily basis. But also on top of that, you are training at the highest level, pushing yourself to the limit and what that brings. So I was kind of punishing my body twice. My brain had to be probably doubly as strong to take the kind of, you know, the adaptations to training and how hard you have to train and discipline, but also the Crohn's element of I'm in pain. I've got fatigue. I can't eat, but I have to. I have to force it down me because if I don't, I'm going to feel bad tomorrow. Or having to alter my training because my Crohn's isn't good that day. Because if I over push it, I'll be out for three or four weeks and I can't afford that. So it made me kind of think logically, think rationally, not think on emotion. Uh, um, Look at the data, the actual data that I had on myself and make rational decisions based on data rather than emotion. Because a lot of, I think a lot of sufferers, Kind of because they're in so much pain, it's understandable. Have that like instant reaction and make that decision because of the pain they're in. I had to kind of step back and go, look, I'm in so much pain, but this is the way to go because the data suggesting it. I had yeah, to think. Yeah. I, can't, I couldn't think of emotion because there was so much riding on, you know, me getting to where I want to be. So I had to learn to actually forget about the pain. Had to had to have very high like pain thresholds, like everyone does with the condition. This has to be the way. Um, I've, I've got no choice and I had to kind of get used to it and I guess now it's the normality of for me like you know pain is just a it's just part of it um, one thing I did always used to say uh, well I used to do which I said to Andy I've got to ask you um, in handball I don't know if you've ever seen the sport I, I used guess. to I used to play on the wing and obviously run up and down the stomachs all over the show now and again we'd get back in defence I'd let a bit of wind out knowing but that attacker would not come anywhere near me. I'd have a nice, you know, couple of minutes in defence, get back up to the tap where I can score a goal. Have you ever, after your lift, thought, you know what I'm going to do here? I'm going to make sure the next person that comes on to lift after me doesn't have a chance to lift. <laughs> have, you ever, have you ever fought in competition, Alec? That's what we want to know. So that's a good question. I've actually never fought in competition. Really? No. Wow. But, um, uh, the, my my Crohn's hurts me more in competition than it does anywhere else. Right. Yeah, so we, we found that on the day of the competition, um, I think it's because I, I pushed myself to the limit because yeah. it's max, maximum attempts. My body is like, no matter how much I drink and hydrate, it's so dehydrated that all my muscles cramp up into a nice painful levels. Yeah, yeah, we we, we struggle. Um, we've not been able to 
keep on top of the cramping in competition. And it's the only time that I cramp oh. badly. Uh, and it's your whole body. It's your triceps, your shoulders, your pecs, like my legs. I haven't got no legs, but my hamstrings yeah. hurt. Uh, it's unbelievable. Um, so, so yeah, like Crohn's tries everything it can to stop me. Um, yeah. I've not, not fired before, but uh, Crohn's has gotten in the way uh, a lot of times. Brilliant. Um, well, for, for other sports then, because you said your dream was to be uh, a Paralympian and compete and win a medal. Obviously, and you got to powerlifting at 16. What other sports did you try? Yeah, so my first love, and this is quite a funny story, um, obviously being a Liverpool fan, when I was about five or six, I said to my mum, I want to play for Liverpool one day. She, she started laughing at me. She's like, look, um, she sat me down. She's like, look, you can't. I was like, why not? She's like, you've got no legs. I was like, ah, oh, good point. I've never seen anybody with no legs before. Um, but yeah, apart from that, um, when I was 11, uh, I, my first proper love of judo at like a competitive level was, was judo, sorry. My first love of sport was, was judo. I did it for about five years. Uh, I got to a really high standard. Um, like it taught me from a young age about discipline and balancing schoolwork with uh, gym and judo and competitive sport. Um, and when I was 15, I actually thought I was going to the Athens Paralympic Games because I you know, got to that sort of level. Right, well. Realizing, realizing that in judo at the Paralympic Games, there is no classification for amputees. It's only for the visually impaired and blind. And nobody, wow. nobody knew at the time because they thought, I'd, I'd, you know, I got into the competitions, I beat a lot of people. Um, my last competition, I beat someone who was 28. I was 15. Wow. Yeah, it was incredible. I couldn't believe it. it was the hardest fight of my life. Um, so I thought after that, I've done enough to go. Um, that was heartbreaking to find out that there's just no category for me. So um, I took a year off, focused on my GCSEs, and it was actually during my GCSEs I found powerlifting. But yeah, um, yeah, judo was the was the one before powerlifting. Now, I mean, for me to, to, to kind of finish up, it, this could be a very silly question or to a lot of people, probably quite silly. To me and Andy, there's some easy answers because of the sport inside, but we want to know, what do you feel has been your biggest achievement? Wow. Um, people always think that it's probably the Rio Silver because of like, you know, because of that, list of it's only been two like it's only been me and other one other person yeah but actually actually it, it isn't I, I think it's the um how i've managed to constantly come back from worsening flares so the flares have been progressively bad over the years um and now it's probably the worst it's going to be for me and, and this is the hardest comeback of my career of my life um, but I'm lucky that I've got experience that I've come back from bad situations and I'm using everything that I've learned to try and like beat it this time. But I do think potentially this is probably my last comeback because I think the next one, the next flare is probably it. Um, yeah, yeah. I think this is going to, this is the, this is as bad it's going to get for me. So, um, I'm lucky that I've got, you know, 10 years of battling constantly that is giving me all the tools that I need to really go for it now. Um, because the stakes are very high and I'm, I'm always on the edge. And uh, I think that's my biggest achievement to always be able to come back um, with all the negativity that is brought. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, speaking from 
like personally, the, the stress I might have put my body under with, maybe it's through sport, maybe it's through work and various things, that, that stress that your body gets put under does affect your IBD and it's affecting my Crohn's. And, you know, sometimes ways you look back in quite silly scenarios, but other times where it's, you know, it's, it's not helped. And with yourself to hear and kind of read about them stress levels your body's probably gone through. Like I say, we know friends and family that have trained at the elite level to be an Olympian. The fact that you've done it on three occasions and you're about to go and do it again and you're managing your IVD is just like absolutely incredible. Um, so I, I'd take my hat off to you. I'm actually in awe. And it's good to hear, like, a lot of people probably could look at, you know, your page on the Paralympic websites, Wikipedia, and go, oh, all these medals. But actually hearing you say it's your biggest team is fighting back and showing to, you know, the young people out there that want to become powerlifters or anything else and compete at Olympic Games or Paralympic Games. You can do it if you've got Crohn's. I think I always say to people in my talks, um, especially with the IBD community, I always say that do not let IBD be the reason you never achieve your potential in life. Do it more because you've got IBD. Because I think think in the early stages, the excuses were quite easy for me. Um, And people go to me, look, all this potential, and you're giving us excuses. Yes, I know you're in pain. I know you're suffering. We can't relate to it. But if we can give you the tools and the knowledge to try and navigate your way through it, your potential and your ability, if you commit, it, it might lead somewhere. And that for me gave me a little bit of hope that the disease, you know, in order for the disease to, well, for the treatments to actually progress and research to progress, you need to push it to the limit and see how much you can take. And I think the way I'm doing it now is um, it's a case study for the future. I think, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think I'm, I'm willing to release all my data afterwards um to maybe hope that you know medical practitioners you know look at it and go you know what we need to test how we did it and can we do it at a mass scale um just to see because i know i'm in a very privileged position in terms of what the access that i have medically and i I always say how lucky i am to have that support um but but i guess you know you need case studies sometimes that that are the outlier to to realize what's what's possible Um, ali you like you like superman Oh, not the, the leg version. They're going to gonna harvest your blood and try and make little supermen and women yeah. out there. Uh, I want to say Superman, I'll say someone that's um, very like rigorous and resilient in my, in my approach. I think um, saying we're, we're super, you know, men and women, now I think we're just kind of, you know, we're all human. And I think yeah. what's good about humans is that they've got the ability to, 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 to have that sort of resilience no matter what you just have to find it and that, that's your superpower that's what I'm trying to allude to like that's your you need to harness that kind of feeling and that mentality and that determination I suppose yeah yeah it's amazing well, people so, think I'm nuts so don't, don't try it at home do not do that <laughs> <laughs> well what we'll get on to is I don't know if you've had the chance um with obviously more important things going on in your life, to listen to a Scouse lad and a man just talk shit on a podcast. But in season one, Ali, we did do uh, a couple of different things, and one of them was a famous poo. So me and Andy were getting uh, people to write in to us. Uh, we were telling some of our stories, but we were getting people to write in, and basically it's um, a lot of it was us kind of opening up and just um, letting the world know what some of the situations we've been in. But also I think Andy's 
Andy's one was talking about having um, a poo in the Coliseum, actually. So it can be as famous as you can get. But obviously, Andy's asked you, Andy, prior to the podcast. And you are going to be our first guest on season two to share their famous poo story. So we're going to give you the floor, but we imagine there's going to be some questions coming back from me and Andy. So it's actually um, Paralympics related. Brilliant. Because obviously that is the theme here. I think you've gone to the top of the list by just saying them words before you famous poo. (laughs) Remember earlier I said to you that for five months leading up to the Games, I didn't, for 2012, I didn't actually have much symptoms, uh, probably due to luck more than anything else. But actually, on the day of the competition, so on the day, I was actually competing in the evening. So I had the whole day to kind of chill out and prepare and, you know, get myself ready. Um, So I was uh, having some food in the food hall. and then I left and I, oh, I thought, I need the toilet. So I went to the toilet and uh, I thought, then I looked down, I was like, oh my God, it's blood. I was like, oh no, 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 not, not today. Not today, of all days, not again. Not like four years ago, not again. Like, the five months coming, leading into this has been great, surprisingly. Not now, not after everything that's happened. Um, so I thought, right, I've got two choices. Do I tell the coaches and the doctors because they're going to pull me out because I'm bleeding? Or I don't tell them and try to survive for another four hours. <laughs> so uh, I thought, you know what? It's only blood. I feel good anyway. So it's fine. So uh, I, I got to the XL room, what room? And uh, my coach goes, are you okay? I was like, yeah, I'm all right. Um, oh, I've been bleeding, by the way. I saw blood in the toilet. He's like, what? I was like, yeah, I saw blood. Don't worry about it. I feel fine. He's like, his face just dropped. And he's like, why don't you say anything? I was like, I'm not, I'm not getting pulled out. Not, not today. Like, um, and then you can just see the panic on his face because like one, how much blood have I lost? Two, am I dizzy? Three, how is that going to affect my performance? Because like, we don't know what, you know, that's going to do to me losing that blood. But the thing is, because it was a warm up room, it was too late to pull me out. So what he did was he rushed the warm-up to see what I was capable of. <laughs> wow. But to be fair, that was, um, well, for me, that performance was better than, um, than Rio. Uh, because, yeah, I, I, I broke the European record that day. Um, oh. And I nearly won a silver if it wasn't for external circumstances. So that was my famous poo. Um, it, wasn't a, it wasn't the best poo because uh, I was bleeding. <laughs> I managed to compete on the day and... Uh, Record. So um, for me, for me, I, I kind of um, I laughed it off. Uh, I made a joke about it, and I think it was the best way to be because I think I like laughter, and I think laughter gets you through the pain. Um, yeah, but I think yeah. I wasn't in any pain. All I saw was blood, and um, it didn't fit my performance. So I, I guess for me, I was one of the lucky ones because there was no pain. Wow, wow. where do we start? <laughs> Go on, lad. I think he's just top trumped every famous poo we had on season <laughs> one. <laughs> just clear, always tell your doctor. Don't do what I do. Yeah. Don't do what I do. Yeah. Did it, um, did it affect you? Like, what happened after the competition then? Was there any, as in a day later, was it a continuous or was it just, yeah, I had a, a memorable poo. It could have affected me. I just started competing in the Paralympic Games. Uh, to be honest, I think um, I think afterwards, if you saw the pattern, I fled again. Yeah, yeah, of course. Because yeah, of, of the, I don't know if it was the bleeding or the the stress of what happened on the day in terms of the outcome. 
and the fighting we went through to try and get a decision about why the lift wasn't given and um, stuff like that. Yeah, um, yeah. More, I was actually more kind of disappointed about me not meddling and the outcome rather than what my bleeding was. Yeah, that kind of emotional stress led to probably the flare rather than the blood. I think the blood was a one-off, looking back at it. Um, and it's with it happened on the day. But I was not in any pain until um, I flared about probably three or four weeks later, which was probably too late in terms of it was just the, 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 the time frames are too much because I would have flared from the beginning, wouldn't I? So yeah, um, yeah. I think I did it to myself in terms of the, the stress I went through emotionally afterwards. Was, was your coach, like, I know you said yeah, your coach was kind of flipping out, but like how close was your coach to pulling you out? Like, because obviously he, he, has, he has like a duty of care of you, doesn't he? Like, I, I imagine so in, in terms of making sure that you're safe to compete. Yeah, I think, I think in my head, he did everything he could. Um, when you've got an athlete who is uh, as, as headstrong as always back then, and the fact that the warm-up was actually good, it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't yeah. oh my God, he's, he's struggling. So he, he, did, he did all the te- tests to give himself that informed choice. Of, actually, I'm not overriding him and pull him out, or is the warm-up good enough for him to compete and at least be competitive? And the warm-up went really, really well. Um, you know, I felt fine. I looked fine. I, I don't, you know, I wasn't um, showing any sort of other symptoms. Um, I think it generally was a one-off, and my warm-up went really well. And actually, I don't know, it was justified because on the day I brought the European record. So, you know, I think he did everything he possibly could, but that day no one was going to deny me because you know I've, I've been through so much to get there. It would have been absolutely madness to pull me out unless I was unless it got really bad, obviously. Um, they, they would have definitely pulled me out if, if the warm-up was so bad that I had to be rushed in. Um, but I think it got kind of kind of lost in the whole controversy of what happened. And I think, looking back, I'm like, oh, actually, nobody really questioned me about my symptoms until, actually, yeah. until I played again, like four or five weeks later, because of the whole you know, controversy around what had happened. It got kind of, the the crowds had got lost because we were, we were all fighting about you know, why the lift wasn't given and wanted answers. But I think looking back, it, it was the right choice. I felt fine. There we have it, Andy. We've gone from people having a shit at Glastonbury to people shitting the pants at a football match to someone else having a shit at Olympics and breaking a world record. <laughs> you know what I mean? European breaking record. a European record, sorry. <laughs> European. Um, brilliant. Ali, uh, from the both of us, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on and I think a lot of the stuff you spoke about, it's been good to obviously get to know yourself and kind of the, the challenges you've gone through, but linking that to the episode all being about fitness, I'm sure um, it'll definitely, I know coming off the back of this, it'll inspire me in terms of when I'm doing any kind of fitness in the future, but I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that hopefully listen to this episode and it does um, inspire them after lockdown or even in lockdown to kind of go, well, this guy's... Uh, fought back on a number of occasions and I'm sure they'll uh, well me and Andy will definitely get up off the couch from now on rather than having a bag, bag of Maltesers well, I definitely will I don't know about Andy <laughs> well okay, do a swap I'll have the Maltesers and you can have but good luck um, with everything moving forward with your training um, if you are I'd love to hear the news if you know fingers crossed that in terms of your health reasons that if you are at Birmingham um, me and Andy will uh, 
be in the stands with our Poo Crew t-shirts on. Um, oh, I dare you. <laughs> over there. <laughs> well, thank um, you. Yes, thanks so much for coming on. No, thanks for having me. Oh, cheers, Ali. Thank you very much, buddy. It's been a, it's been a, been a privilege to speak to you. Again, thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Crones with Jake and Andy. Don't forget to write into us at talkingcrones at gmail.com and follow us on our social pages. And if you've got any questions at all, please, please, please get in touch. Yes, please do. Ciao for now.